This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we squash the centipede. Let's say you and I are sitting across the table from one another. There's a pot of $2 in the middle. This is how the game works. I can choose to either take the whole pot or pass my turn to you. If I take the pot, I get $2 and you get zero. But if I pass the choice to you, $2 are added to the total. So let's say I pass. The pot is now $4. You can choose to either cash out or pass. If you cash out, you get three and I get one. We split it, though unevenly. But if you pass, in which case there's an additional $2 are added. So what do we do? Should you and I agree to jack up the price as much as possible? Or should we protect ourselves? Are we competing or working together? This is called the centipede problem. And when it's played in a vacuum with stakes between zero and $100, it's pretty predictable. But what if the stakes are higher, like winning a championship or curing a plague? And welcome, episode 69 of Game Theory, podcast nice. about competition, strategy, decision-making. It is in the year of our Lord, NFL Draft Week, which is a constant topic that we can mine content from every year, whether you like it or not. It is also the most un-American thing of all time. We can draw water from a stone. There's no, <laughs> su- there's no such thing as NFL Draft content until the day of the NFL Draft. There's yeah. people filling the airtime because they're not satisfied with the XFL, and everybody in the world knows that baseball is boring except our favorite team is in the worst division i think probably ever yeah and this is this is true i checked this out last night the worst team in the nl or the al east would be half a game back in the al central mm. they are just horrifically bad it's embarrassing and so people have to spend time pretending to care about where like 21 year olds are going to go to sign multi-billion dollar contracts for the next several years and they all have to like make arguments and it gets really personal yep. and maybe some people say some things they regret maybe they get fired <laughs> yes. off of major news networks maybe i'm talking about something else <laughs> the point is there's nothing going on in the sporting world right now so we have to make up so-called content there's nothing and going so on in the football world there's plenty going on in, in the playoffs which are great but the nfl draft is amazing because it gives us content Regardless, we had planned maybe an interview with someone. They were doing the NFL draft coverage for two jargons and one lie, and that is the greatest two truths. Two truths and one lie is not as good as two jargons and one lie because there's so much more game theory at play. And perhaps we'll do that in the summer when NFL content is slow. Indeed. But I do love the NFL draft because it's somehow the National Football League has hoodwinked players into thinking that getting drafted is an honor because they're like, it, nothing ever in the history of America has been less American than your boss telling you where you're going to go. Well, I, I, I disagree. I think I think it is an honor, and I think it's it, it's the most American pageantry mm. you can get because it still gives people the illusion that like hard work and merit True. get you where you sure. want to go, and just getting into the door is an honor. And I, I feel like that's a that's an American thing where like if you ask people like two generations ago, like well if you're good to the company, the company will be good to you. True. Like that kind of stuff. Like if you're good to the NFL, the NFL will be good to you. It'll send you to some place like Green Bay, and you can end your career as a <sighs> conspiracist in 
the lesser of New York's teams. Yes. Like, it, it's, it's just such a bizarre thing. So I, I think it's a classically American thing. And in that way, it is deeply stupid. It is incredibly stupid. But we're not doing an episode on the NFL draft. We're doing an episode on something called the Centipede Game. Alas, last week... My cat passed away. Your cat passed away earlier in the year. My cat passed away. They were both at the ripe old age of somewhere between 19 and 20. And yeah, sucks to suck. But also, uh, that's why we're a little bit behind on the YouTube channel because it just didn't feel like it. Last couple episodes have not appeared on YouTube. They will, I promise. We're doing new clips and all of that stuff. And if you like to subscribe to the YouTube channel, you're more than welcome to. It's on YouTube.com and links are everywhere and all of that. uh, debating whether or not to put the videos on Spotify, I don't think I'm going to just because it takes more time and the audio is easier and this is a podcast at the end of the day. And also because if you've ever watched a, spot, a, a video on Spotify, it's one of those things that you can't, the functionality, I don't want, when you watch a video on your phone and you touch it and like it fucks up, like I don't want Spotify, like this is for listening. This is listening app. I do like when Spotify plays like the little animations with sure. certain albums Definitely that are going that. on in the background. 100%. I think that's just the coolest thing. It makes me feel like it, it's like a novelty ringtone. Yeah, sure. Like, oh my God. Like we've, we've really surpassed the boundary of what we thought was possible with low <laughs> level entertainment before. And now we get to live that experience. The greatest one of all time, Luke Combs. Um, he had a song like Long cold beer or something. I forget what it was. It was really great. It was a great summer song. It was an awesome summer song. Cold, ice cold, something something about you cold heard that, beer. You heard that Bo Burnham song, Pandering? Yeah, well, Bo Burnham yeah, is too all these, like, for... multi-millionaires who write these songs. They've like, never done a day of work in their lives and like, oh, yeah, I'd never live in any of these small towns, but I'm going to sing about them. That's exactly right. But in Bo Burnham, I like Bo. He's a little... Annoying in some way and not I mean, funny. Ever. I mean, the dude sniffs his own farts, but yeah. he's an entertainer and a comedian. Like, I don't know. I don't know any good ones who don't really do a lot of that. I vibe, I vibe with that. But what I was saying was that the animation on the Spotify for this song was simply a sweating, dark bottled bottle of beer. And it was porn. It's incredible. Like those old Budweiser commercials mm-hmm. where it's just like, all mm-hmm. right, here's the the great taste that'll fill you up and never let you down or something. I don't know. Is that the right, is that the right slogan? But the point is that it had this like, it had this like glistening, dewy, Mm -hmm. beaded outside of a glass and filled with this golden, delicious, foamy looking piss lager. (laughs) And it, it looks so good. Like as a kid, I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's the height of luxury right there. Yeah. Like there's no way we can, we, we just saw the Carl's junior commercial with the sauce dripping onto the shirt. Mm -hmm. Like that that, was quite the commercial. that made me think some things that I never thought I would think. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm seeing this beer right after that. Like, mm-hmm. I really want to be an adult now. So, uh, speaking of Bud Light, they've been in the news for their marketing situation and pandering. Um, pandering. We're, I don't think we're going to talk about that. There's not really a game theory angle to that other than your relationship with your regulars, I think, is a really interesting thing. The second thing is, make no mistake about this. This is the, the woman who made the decision to market with a... A transgender TikTok influencer didn't understand the most basic parts of being in the beer business. It's the same part of being in the gambling business and the tobacco business, which is that the addicts pay the bills, not new people. The addicts pay the bills. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think there's I think there's something to be said for everybody wants to drink cheap beer, mm-hmm. including people who have identified with a different tribe than mine in the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to drink cheap beer, but uh, I I do think you're right that there's. Also, something to be said for the people who are already hooked on the product. You can't can't let them go. Can't let them down. Got to got to keep them on a tight little leash. And that's 
That's one hundred and one, yeah, really, for marketing. It is. I, I, every time I, every time something like this comes up, like a failed marketing campaign, that people say, "Oh, this alienates this or that." I, I, I'm not interested in the culture wars angle. I think that's no. stupid and a waste of people's time. What I am interested in is drawing this back to the office, the episode specifically when there's a fire in the office and everyone's outside and they're giving Michael Scott a business school quiz, <laughs> and Ryan goes, "Is it more expensive to get a new customer or keep an existing customer?" And he gets it completely wrong. And Ryan says this thing that I've always thought was like, oh, my God, this is like business school revelations. He goes, it is 10 times more expensive to create a new customer as opposed to keeping an existing customer. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure somebody out there could tell me. Dan, if you're listening to this, (laughs) you know who you are. Yeah. You're my my go-to on all the stupid things that I say that need correcting. And I'm begging you, please help me figure out whether that's true or not. But I I think of that every single time. Like, well, Yeah. yeah, no, of course it's more expensive to try to find new customers and keep existing. Yeah, and especially because, like, the, the marketing angle of this is funny to me. Like, just make it nostalgic. It's like, that's working. People are willing to spend so much more money. Just make Bud Light, like, your dad's Bud Light again. Like, do the cans to whatever people grew up in. Remember the spinny bottle where it will swirl? No. Bud Light created a bottle that had rings on the inside so the beer would come out of the bottle into your mouth oh, and swirl. Yeah, like that like that science fair mm-hmm. thing where if you spin it up, you can sh- Correct. demonstrate how much faster the fluid flows. Yep. Super interesting <laughs> physics, by the way. Uh, really fascinating stuff. But, I, man, I forgot about that. Yeah, see, like that kind of shit. Bring that back. Bring the Clydesdales back. <clears throat> It, it, that's like that's like when they they got rid of Zima mm-hmm. and then they brought Zima back, which is just like vodka with some like white food coloring in it. Right, people like and, that stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would go out and drink a Zima right now. It's it's getting warm enough right now that I would go outside and, and drink a Zima. It is about time. Speaking of warm yeah, enough, um, when I first moved to the Northeast, I lived in a month-to-month lease apartment so they could find a place that I liked. And I found a place that I liked. It was in a basement. It was a closet that they had turned into an apartment. But I was poor. It was my first real job. And it was a great location. I could stumble my way down the road to the train that would take me into the city. I also cut eight minutes per way. So 16 total minutes on average off of my commute, much closer to the interstate. It was great. However, there are big trees next to this building. And ergo, this is my segue. There was a centipede infestation. And so I will tell you, the centipede game, which is a game theory concept because of the way that the mathematicians who are math people are just wildly uncreative. Like, look, it's got a hundred legs. Centipede. Okay. If you've never really seen like two centipedes fighting on your kitchen wall, then you would not be so quick to mock it because, oh, the centipede's got a hundred legs. Anything else would be fine. They are so much scarier than spiders or any other bugs. They're so much smarter. They're so much faster. They are Dude, so they're fast. They're crazy fast. They're well, so I mean, fast. you got a hundred legs. It's like you're 50 times as fast as a biped. Stop with the math. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, like, they have all these other like little appendages too. It's like, are these just sensors? Is there poison in these things? Yeah. Like, what, so there's not poison. Happen? There are like a it. bunch of bacteria that people don't really vibe with. Because um, I Googled the shit out of that when I lived in that apartment. And they're like, yeah, don't touch them. Like, oh, sick. And then you try to catch one. And he's like, I'm out, bro. Like, oh my God, this is terrible. So the thing to do is nothing. Just let yeah, them. absolutely. Uh, move, condemn the building, burn it. Right. Maybe. Mm-hmm. But game theory centipede game, I think, is a lot more fun and interesting and accessible. Whoa, and what a, a safe way. For you. I know. That was really incredible. You set them up. <laughs> I keep setting them up. So the centipede game is a formal game theory structure. It was uh-huh. invented by this guy named Robert Rosenthal in 1981. And it's what's called an extensive form game. And basically, that just means players take turns going back and forth. And the structure of the centipede game is that there's a pot that's shared between the two players based on some distribution. And at each turn that the players take successively, 
a player has an option between either taking a share of the pot, which will be larger than the other player's share, or passing the pot back to the other player, which in turn increases the total size of the pot. So at each turn, I have the choice of taking, say, two out of the three items that are in the pot and giving one to you, Nick, right. or passing it back to you, and now suddenly there are five items in the pot. And if you take it, you can take three of the five, or you can pass it back to me, and now there are seven, and I can take four out of the seven. And it keeps going back and forth like that. And, and I think the original origin of the centipede game was, as you said, there was a hundred turns in this kind of structure. And I, I think the ending structure was like, okay, if you if you add a certain number of items to this theoretical pot, at the end, the, the last decision that the second player has, because it's player one, player two, player one, player two, the second player has the final decision. They can either take 101 out of the 200 items that are in the pot, or they can split the pot evenly both players get 100 items, and we're on our way. And that's called either honoring or defecting. And it, it when you compare 101 to 100, or you compare 99 to 100, when you're looking at the last step of the centipede game, the difference is not really that substantial. I mean, it's literally 1% difference between honoring and defecting. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, if you look at the centipede game essentially in reverse, you solve this by a process called backward induction. Mm -hmm. What you find is that at each step, each player's decision-making process is clearly rational in terms of if I take the pot, I get more than if I give the pot back. So by moving backward, if you step all the way back through each one, each of the 100 turns that the players take, at every single point, a player is rationally incentivized to take the pot because it's a higher expected payout than if they were to pass the pot and get a smaller share. And so really at the end of this backward induction process of trying to solve like, okay, what should I do? Should I honor or defect this process? The incentive from the very, very beginning is to not start the game and take the pot immediately without passing back and hoping for a higher payoff. And it's crazy to think about that. Uh, so this reminds me a lot of our Traveler's Dilemma, which we talk about all the time. It's my favorite game theory game, which the airline loses your thing and you're with someone else who lost the exact same thing. And they're like, well, tell us how much it's worth. And you bid each other down. And like the way to win is like to get $2 compared to $0. And the, the larger concept here, which we, we're going to get more into the game theory part of this, um, the theory, but the larger thing that we always talk about on the show is that it doesn't take into account the humans are humans. The other thing I'm starting to notice about game theory as a general concept is that the average person rarely wants to beat their opponent in the game more than they simply want the best outcome for themselves, which is a completely different situation. So in the prisoner's dilemma, it's a classic situation of like, do you trust the other person in the other room does, knows not to snitch? But your incentive is, I don't want to go to prison. Or if I'm in prison, I want to be in prison less. In this situation, it's a little different. We talked about it last week, uh, last episode 68 in poker, which the difference between cash games and tournament games, where if you're the final three at a poker table, you win two. If you're final two, you win seven million. It's a little bit different because you're like, well, two is great. Seven is better. So, but you don't want to win the tournament. You're like, I want the money. So in this situation, the game theory, the problem that I have with the mathematicians is that they're assuming that I want to guarantee beating my opponent. I don't. I don't care. I want as much money as I possibly can. The weird line, if, if a psychologist or social scientist could figure out where is the line where you're like, I'm starting to panic that I could lose this now. Because there's never a de-incentive of losing the whole pot in this situation, I, that doesn't exist for me. I would just continually go up infinitely and be like, 99 is so much closer to 100 than 2 is to 0 in my brain. It just is. Yeah, it, it, well, well, 99 is 1 off of 200, and 2 is 2 off of 0. 100. So, 
We, I know Wait, that it's what? factually. I know that zero is. Fur- yeah. I know that factually zero is further away from two. However, two dollars is basically zero dollars to me. Where ninety nine is much closer to a hundred than two is to zero. So what are you doing yeah. with two dollars? How are you going to go to the bank? Are you going to go into your car to the bank and put that into your bank account? Ninety nine bucks. I could do anything. I could get on a plane probably. <laughs> you could you could do anything. I yeah, could you buy could a boat. buy almost a meal in DC. <laughs> well, I, I I did notice this interesting. I, I, there's a there's a picture that you can find on the internet of people who use the stacked weights on like a cable pull down or mm-hmm. press down machine or whatever. That's interesting. And it's the it's the funniest thing. This photo shows like this normal distribution. So a normal distribution is where you've got like this kind of peak in the middle where most most of the things that you're measuring go toward the average. Right. And then as you go out toward the extremes at the very high end and the very low end, they taper off. And so that's what's called the normal distribution. Like statistically speaking, that's how most measurements These are. These are curve, like bell curve grading and stuff, right? Exactly. A bell yeah. curve is exactly the term that that you would use to describe that shape. And this this photograph is the worn out edges around where you would put the peg to stack the weights. So it's like, sure. all right, I want to use 50 pounds. I'm going to put the pin into this hole. There's a normal distribution because you can see more and more wear as you get to the center. And then there's less and less as the weights get heavier. So like at a certain weight, there's like a normal... Uh, like most of the people are lifting that, except for at the very end of the bell curve, there's a 95-pound plate and a 100-pound plate. There's almost nowhere next to the 95, but there's a ton around the 100. So mm. when people are like, all right, I'm not going to do 95. Yeah, I'm going to do 100 pounds. So like the, psychologically, they round it up, even though there's no... Physiologically speaking, there's no real reason why the number 100 pounds is significant, more significant than 95 pounds. That's just like how we measure that quantity. Yeah. But inside the human mind, because that measurement system is so ingrained in the way that we understand numbers and quantities and value, sure, it, people are like, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and round that up. So what, what you're talking about, Nick, I think is a very normal, very common bias that doesn't have any real basis in like the math of figuring out okay what's the backward induction process of solving the rational decision making apparatus for the centipede game right. and instead it's a hundred dollars sounds like a lot of money and 99 sounds like a hundred dollars yep. so i'm gonna go ahead and try to shoot for that right and it, it assumes it also assumes and this is i mean i guess we can get deeper into the game because these people are really math mathematicians and economic theorists the biggest problem they have when creating theories like this is they don't factor this in into account the problem with game theory is that, and this is a problem with any board game, some games are cooperative games. And that means that the goal is to win the game as a unit. Other games are competitive games, right? One player one versus player two versus player three. We are not cooperating. Whether or not we co- cooperate in a competitive game is a different thing than whether or not we cooperate just out into the world. I would rather have $99, $77, $44 than two. As a result of that, the, the question I have is like, at what number is that true? Right. Yeah. There's there, there's there's some there's some bounding value at which you can say, all right, I'm willing to try to pass the pot up because over this dollar amount, I'm going to be satisfied, and under that dollar amount, I'm really going to be bummed out. And my opponent and I can kind of agree that there's some some range of money that we both like to walk away from this from. Right. And I think you've I think you've hit the crux of the point here, which is that in this game which is limited by a starting point and a defined endpoint because we talked about that before yep. games without a defined endpoint are, are understood differently than games with a defined endpoint right 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 within the bounds of this structure the question that a player has to answer isn't necessarily what's the most rational decision for me at this moment the question is what is going to generate more value for me is it taking value from this game or is it defeating my opponent and those are those are completely different things and so, so I'm going to so I'm going to 
go on like a little bit of a, a journey. I, I guess, yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe a quick quick glance down memory lane. Detroit Red Wings, Colorado Avalanche in the 1990s. Yeah, I watched the documentary. It, Intense rivalry, in, mm-hmm. incredible relationship between these two teams. Right. If you were interested in hockey at the time, you know that the Stanley Cup ran through Detroit or Colorado. That's just how it was for like a six or seven or eight years. Like 10. For a yeah, long time, long these two time. teams dominated, and they really, really genuinely hated each other. They were professionals playing a game, earning money to perform a sport for yeah. entertainment, and at- but they genuinely, I think, hated each other. So this is before social media. And the reason that's important is because now across all sports, um, there is a level of camaraderie and brotherhood where you understand your opponent on the field is much more a coworker. Back then that simply did not exist. You couldn't like text someone, you couldn't tweet out, you were sorry for doing something screwed up. It was just like through the paper and like there was genuine animosity the way that the, in professional sports, there's genuine animosity there where there would be like in small town rivalries that has gone. Um, but for people who watch sports in the seventies through the nineties, they very much remember that in, in rivalries like the Cowboys and the Eagles and things like they actually hated each other. They did not want to hang out with one another. They could not vibe in the off season. They weren't friends and they weren't as rich as they are now. So this was like, they actually meant ill to one another. Yeah. And I, I think there's a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a nostalgia factor. It, it's, it seems nostalgic to me in a way, but like you can just imagine like the small town rivalry that defines itself in relationship to somebody else. Like right. it's a good year if we beat Rock Springs. I don't care what we do with the rest of the season. We can lose yeah, every other game. Sure. If we beat I like, Rock yeah, Springs, I like that it's too. a good Army year. and Navy, same thing. I have no, I mean, Navy recently yep. was like borderline going to the New Year's Six Bowls. Like who gives a shit, bro? You got to beat Army. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a little bit of nostalgia to that because that really gets you away from the question of what's more valuable. Or I think it answers the question of what's more valuable in a highly biased, highly personalized way. So yep. for, for these teams, for, for Detroit and Colorado, the question was, well, they, they were in an interesting situation. The reason I bring it up is because do I want to win the Stanley Cup and yeah. succeed at the game of hockey, or do I want to beat the hell out of the guys across from me? Right. For them, it happened to kind of like align. Yeah. Because they were the two best teams in hockey. Sure. They had to beat each other in the playoffs eventually if they were going to win the Stanley Cup. So the question is, do I want to be a, a better hockey player or do I want to just like punch the lights out of the guy across from me because right. I just really, really hate him? Sure. There was, so there was some non-zero overlap there. So I, I think that's a really interesting point about the bias that people might bring into playing a game like the Centipede game. You know, it's, it's not about defeating the person who happens to be playing with you unless you have some kind of special, like, villain hero type relationship with them you want to walk away with more value and yes. participating in the game should reflect that desire rather than the desire to like take a little bit more of the pot from your opponent right and this is when we start looking for practical applications of this is really difficult because there are no way to, to duplicate this scenario other than in scientific experiments which people have done and they found out that people play for a while and they cash out around 40 50 60 bucks like that's good enough for me which is sort of the point i was making like at what point do i not trust you not to fuck me like 50 is good enough i'm bored now Let's get out of here. But the practical applications, um, sports are always a great example. And I think this isn't necessarily sports related as much as it's union related. I'm reminded of, of Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes' contracts. So they are unanimously the two greatest quarterbacks of all time, essentially already. Patrick Mahomes is already. They think if he got you know in a car crash and had to amputate his leg, they're like, he would be a Hall of Famer. He signed, so when rookies are drafted in the NFL, they have required contract sizes and lengths based on where they were drafted. It's been negotiated. It's a union thing. It is inarguable. At a certain point when they're allowed to negotiate, it's open season. It's a contract. When Patrick Mahomes signed his most recent deal, it was groundbreaking in a number of ways. One was that it was 10 years. 
which is crazy. And there are opt-outs, and that doesn't really matter. The other thing was that, because they were like, they just won the Super Bowl. He's so fucking good. Like, that makes a ton of sense. The other thing was that people started to break it down, and they're like, you know, in six years, you're going to be, like, crazy underpaid. And, and then people started to look at it and whatnot. But this is exactly the kind of thing of the centipede game. If he were playing in the game, trying to help his side, which is labor versus management, the thing that labor needs him to do is to get as much money that is good for the next person behind them. Like you need to make sure that the pot continues to go up. He was like, "Mm, nah. And the better example of this, of course, is Tom Brady. For those of you who don't know Tom Brady, he was for a long time married to one of the most financially successful and famous supermodels of all time. Supermodels make... He's also a spokesman for one of the least successful and financially destructive cryptocurrency scams of all time. Yes, and he forgot that he went to college and probably could have looked into that and sniffed that shit out. (laughs) Went went to college, yeah. (laughs) He went to the fourth best institution in southeastern Michigan. Okay. Barf. (laughs) He was married to the supermodel. She was worth uh, a quarter of a billion, half a billion, an ass ton. Like a crazy, crazy amount of money. A lot of money. As a result of that, while being the best quarterback in the NFL, he was almost never the highest paid because he would always leave more in the pot so that the team could distribute it to other players. What that ends up doing is it pushes, it keeps the level of contracts for, for future players from going up as high as it should probably go up. So instead of participating in the, the, this kind of co- competition with management and like getting more in the pot, he was like, nah, I would rather win. I've got all the money in the world. I don't really give a shit. So these two quarterbacks have, in a way compared to their fellow quarterbacks, not done the thing that they need them to do. They have instead checked, they've cashed out of the game, like that's good enough for me. Being a mega hundred millionaire is fine. As a result of that, the, every single negotiation is a little bit different. So this is kind of like a parallel where I'm thinking, um, it, if he were just to do like, I just need the most money I can get without any questions asked, but that's not how it goes because people want different things. Yeah, and that's a really interesting question about what individual game participation does for yeah. the collective good and <laughs> i guess when i say collective good here you're talking about a dispute between labor and management yeah. i mean that's how contract negotiations work sure so the question of what is the common good is well you know if you're from the player's side you, you want more money and you want the incentive structure for the management to give you more money to be there and right. it's not going to be there if yep. people don't continue to participate and buy in so but like weirdly by cooperating, you actually lower the level of potential payout for your side Correct. later on. Right. So but you, you, you kind of hurt your tribe by cooperating with your adversary, which is right. not, uh, it's not great. No. And I, I think on a larger social structure, it's hard to find exact parallels. I think, you know, when you're negotiating with money, yeah. there's a, there's a pretty precise way to measure that. Yeah. But when it comes to tribalism and like divisions between social groups and political identities, I, I think, there's a pretty clear connection between when people choose to cooperate with those outside the tribe and the perceived payoff for the people who are inside the tribe. And they're not really simpatico. I mean, the incentives to defect and to not honor agreements and to be competitive, they really sort of exist if you consider something like the centipede game where like if you use the backward induction process to solve this, right. at every step of the way, you're incentivized not to cooperate. Yes. So, I mean, you, and you see it in the, in the NFL, right? So when, Mahomes, when Patrick Mahomes signed this enormous contract, by not putting their face to the fire as the greatest contract, he was in the greatest position to negotiate in the history of professional sports, I would argue. He just won. There's Good. never been anyone like him. It is a holy shit moment. Instead of pushing that, he took a ton. Like he cost, an, he did, make no mistake, he didn't like take an enormous pay cut. He's making hundreds of millions of dollars over his lifetime. He will die a billionaire, no question. But the next contract to come up after him 
uh, was Josh Allen. Josh Allen did the thing that he should do, not as aggressively as he could have, but he got like an enormous groundbreaking deal. He took less money than he probably would have if Patrick Mahomes had raised the bar. And as a team negotiating across from Josh Allen, who is also a very good player for the Buffalo Bills, also a freak show, just amazing, but not quite as good as Mahomes. If the team that's sitting across from him is like, yeah, but Patrick took that deal and you're not Patrick, dude. Then all yeah. of a sudden, the and Brady has a history of doing the same thing. Well, if Brady and Mahomes took less, then who the fuck are you? Yeah, it it, it ripple it has ripples throughout. Right. It can it, go the it's wrong not way. Just like yeah, it's not just your individual bargaining mm-hmm. unit. It's it's everybody who has a, an incentive structure that's similar to yours. Right. It's exactly. Yeah, I think right. it's yeah. I think I think it, that's really interesting. And so that I think to me that raises the question: Is it better in the centipede game, factoring in? your individual desire for payout versus defeating your adversary and factoring in the potential net gain for your tribe versus like the collective good for everybody's tribe. I I think that raises the question, are people more likely or less likely to cooperate or defect in this game? And there's an interesting paper out of the European Review of Social Psychology that answers this exact question. So Hold you on, we're going before. to Europe? Wow, you're cultured. We're going, we're going to Europe. What happens in Europe stays in Europe. That is, you are astoundingly cultured. Well, what can I say? Look at that haircut. But you, you raised an interesting point earlier, and I want to I want to defend the mathematicians and the logicians and the game oh, the theorists logicians. out there. The yeah, the logicians. That's right. Not a magician. Logician. <laughs> I want to defend those people a little bit because part of their job is to establish like, okay, what's the, what's the purely rational mathematical framework? It's, it's like, okay, somebody has to design the rules of traffic out there, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to obey the rules of traffic. Just as long as the system is in place and there's some measure of predictability against which to compare other decision makings or individual instances of people going through the course, like, okay, we, we have to have that framework in place. So I don't want to say that they don't factor that into account. It's just that the framework has to be established before you can start considering other non-framework related factors like individual biases or, or other value considerations. Sure. So so this paper is from 2016. Uh, it's called Cooperation in Repeated Interactions, a Systematic Review of Centipede Game Experiments from 1992 to 2016 by uh, Ava Krakow, Andrew Coleman, and Brioni Pulford. And... It takes a look at centipede game structures and asks the question empirically, do people behave in the way that you would expect rationally on the basis of this backward induction process? And so just reading from some of their results, they they argue that the centipede game provides a formal model of so-called social alternating reciprocal cooperation. So they say a systematic review of experimental research reveals that human decision makers cooperate frequently in this game, except under certain extreme circumstances. Several game situational and individual difference variables have been investigated for the influence on cooperation. The most influential influential are aspects of the payoff function, especially the social gain from cooperation and risk associated with cooperative moves. So there you go. There's your like social payoff. Mm -hmm. The number of players is a factor repetitions of the game so how how long does it last we've got yeah, yeah, yeah. over and over again it's a recurring theme uh group versus individual decisions so collective bargaining would sure. be a little bit different than individual contract negotiations sure. uh, and finally social players social value orientation so their their review of experimental evidence suggests that other regarding preferences including pro-social behavioral dispositions and collective rationality provide the most powerful explanation for cooperation. So in other words, people's awareness of what the collective good looks like, like, okay, what are going to be the ramifications on society and other groups 
on the basis of my decision? And what is our ability to like come to a collectively rational decision? What is like a group negotiating structure look like? Those two things are at the forefront of people's minds when they're playing in centipede games. So what results from a centipede game structure is not the solution of the backward induction problem where like, all right, as soon as we enter into right. the game, we know it's yeah. going to end. So we're going to defect. People actually do end up cooperating and, you know, it, while it might not be the case for specific NFL quarterbacks in this time and place in sure. contract negotiation history, on the whole, I would say that that results in more value being created and, and more benefit uh, than what you would expect from the solution to centipede game theory. Yeah. So I, another thing that I have on this that I find interesting is do how much does disincentive uh, motivate compared to incentive? Like, are you more interested in losing something or gaining something? The other thing is that the the idea that beating your opponent is different than cooperating. So there's a term in business and let's take a pivot here. This is called coopetition. <laughs> <sighs> that's some, that's some 30 rock Jack Donaghy shit. Yes, it is. That's, that's like, Oh pages, yeah. yeah. Well, when are we going to solve this problem? Inoventually. What a great word that is. Inoventually. <laughs> um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It exactly what it sounds like. The, uh, a great, Sounds uh, like nonsense. It, it does. Like. It does. But it, so when you when you consider, I think the greatest example is like look, think of big tech and think of big pharma, and how they lobby the government. And you can have competing drugs in the market, and they could be like, "Yep, both buy ours." But they're like, you know, what we should do is not snitch on ourselves. Another great example for those of us who have seen The Wire: there is the gang on this side, and there's a gang on that side, and they know each other, and they vibe, and it's very clear who's got which territory to sell their heroin to the drug addicts. Instead of warring. They understood like, hey, what if we just didn't and everybody shut up and we just sold drugs and made money? This is coopetition. There's no reason for us to vibe. The problem oh. with the centipede game and selling drugs in Baltimore and lobbying Congress is that as soon as players are aware that there's a game theory equilibrium at play, it becomes exploitable. And that is the, the problem with game theory is that people know about game theory. If, we, if I understand the rules of traffic, I can understand that if I want to speed around you, you people... I can, because I know what you are incentivized and disincentivized, but you're incentivized by living. You're disincentivized by not getting a ticket. And I am very much wanting to go faster than you. So I can just so, break the rules. So wait a minute. Yeah. Are you saying, are you suggesting yeah. that the existence of this podcast, mm. dumb as it is, dumb as we are, mm. and uninformative as it would be compared sure. to like other real resources. Are you saying that us propagating information about yeah. game theory is actually making the world a more competitive, less friendly, more dangerous place? No, for two reasons. One, we have four listeners. And <laughs> number two it's is that the people who mom and dad. Yeah. What's up guys. Uh, and, and number Dan, two, shout out to Dan. I really need you to be correct me on this one. Dan, yeah. I can't wait for that. <clears throat> and number two, the second reason is that the people that would listen to this show would never be the kind of people to exploit. Those people are listening to like Malcolm Gladwell podcasts. <laughs> speaking, speaking of exploitation, although I, I, I cited Malcolm Gladwell like two weeks ago. He is a great writer, also an Dude. enormous douchebag. Two things can be true. He's like he's like uh, he's like the Bo Burnham of self-help books oh uh, yeah he or like yeah like the he has some great observations and found some he wrote some good books and there's like science yeah. and theory and it's there's, it's there's a lot good. of there's a lot of horse hockey in there too though nothing worse than a writer that gets famous i'm telling you there's a reason some of these guys don't do interviews just like you know what go to your cabin and write your books Get the fuck out i was here. listening to i was listening to a c.s lewis audiobook mm -hmm. today i think it was today actually and he said something he's like well yes 
so-and-so chose to write about that topic that attracts bad writers and holds no interest for good ones, which is the general state of the world today. <laughs> what did you write that? Yeah. Lewis wrote that in, I think, ugh, would have been 40. I, I, I don't know when he wrote it. It was on like a review of 16th century English literature. I don't yes. want to. I don't want to blow up my own spot with the audiobooks that I'm listening to right now. Yeah, okay. that um, we'll address that. Uh, I no, love. Let's go ahead and not address that. Okay, let's okay, move on. So with our a good lives. example Let me of listen to my C.S. Lewis in peace. All right. A good example of coopetition. The best example would be, and this is not like a lobbying conspiracy theory example, is when Pfizer, BioNTech, and others agreed to make the vaccine. Now that's that's an interesting one. So yeah. let's let's discuss how is how is this coopetition if you know the so the government heavily subsidized yes. the mRNA technology that was necessary to like produce this. and and it's I think it's also true. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think it's also true that the theoretical basis of mRNA vaccine creation existed before, but was just really expensive and not necessarily better than like the previous slates of vaccine. Like like we didn't need an mRNA vaccine for the flu because the structure of creating the flu vaccine that we have in place which i think is like using inert viruses to like generate antibodies like that, that's a different process than the mrna vaccine right yeah it is um but that's that you're getting a little bit too granular it's a much bigger picture situation the, the real situation is that these companies own manufacturing processes and the people that have the talent to manufacture those things and what the government is saying is like we know you're over here we know you're over there if we give you money will you please like not try to fuck each other and just make this vaccine and they were like yeah um because they both understand two things or i guess three things one is that at a certain the pandemic and the disease divert at a certain point where the pandemic becomes the worst thing it is worse than the disease and with this that happened pretty quickly because uh the disease is not as deadly as other uh, pandemics we've experienced like smallpox and, and hiv and other things and also they understand that having the fucking patent to this is more important uh long term yeah. so like they 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 get that so they're willing to finance a competitor so pfizer ended up paying they funneled some of their money to BioNTech when they didn't have to they agreed to do that just because getting the vaccine into people was good. They did get money. They did get something out of it, but it would have been objectively smarter financially for Pfizer and I forget whoever, Moderna was the other one, for them to just like close the doors and be like, we ain't helping any of you. We're going to profit off of this. The other thing is that Pfizer, I forget which opioid was theirs, but they were looking for some good PR at the time. <laughs> which, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Was it Purdue? No, Purdue is the one that got us all uh, addicted to heroin on purpose. Pfizer just had a different opioid that they were mad at Purdue for having a better one that they got around government rules for. <laughs> Can't yeah. say I blame them for that. No, but it's it, it is kind of wild how the end of the the end of the pandemic came up about as a result of biochemists who make like six hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, I mean it, it makes a ton of sense, and they were motivated to do that. And again, they're all sharing information. They don't have to like objectively just because we're all like potentially going to suffer or die of a disease doesn't mean that they have to. Some people are going to survive. The company could certainly survive and be insanely rich charging people for this, and they're they're going to be it's down true. the road. But it's not. They were not incentivized to do that. They wanted to cooperate, and they wanted the pay. they wanted people to go out in society and take the drugs like they're supposed to take. The other ones that they sell, not this one. Let's get the vaccine in arms. Let's solve the bigger thing here, which is the pandemic. And then we can cure the disease later. Who cares? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting example of that. And I, I think the fact that the government intervened and was like funneling money to help subsidize a lot of this research, I think that was a big factor. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, they had incentives to to defect from the centipede game at the first at the outset. Say, no, we're going to we're going to 
contain all of our information as tightly as possible. We're not going to cooperate. But mm. they had broader social goods in mind. They had a larger payoff at the end in mind. Yep. And I, I think that, once again, bears out that uh, the centipede game structure is really interesting. And like you said, once people gain awareness of it, there's a little bit more tendency to kind of stick to the rational thing. But by and large, I mean, when people are in this kind of structure, they recognize that there are better social goods to be gained by continuing to honor the agreement and pass the pot back and forth and let it grow. Yeah. There's more benefit for me down the road when I continue to let the pot increase in size and not defect right away. And yes. I, I think that's right in line with empirical findings. And I, I think it's I think it's an interesting example. I, I, I wouldn't have drawn that connection before. Yes. So, um, and like another good example would be like the financial crisis of 2008 before it became a crisis when they're like, you insure this, we'll sell this, you insure that, we'll sell that. And the pot just goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And then some, it all it takes is for one other thing to happen. And then they ever first person cashes which out. It, and then which is everyone in America defaulting on loans they couldn't yes. afford. So that was the predatory part, but that's a different conversation. So these, these institutions are kind of agreeing like, you don't stitch, you don't stitch, you don't stitch. We'll borrow against it. We'll borrow against the borrowing. We'll bet against each other. This, that is the centipede game. They're going up and up and up and up and up. When, uh, in order to beat your opponent, you simply would have cashed out right away. You would have found a way to make money immediately, but that's not yeah. they wanted it to go up infinitely, which is another motive here. For people that find themselves in centipede game situations, the alternative to trying to beat your opponent is simply always aiming for more money. Yeah, like, well, let's just keep it, going. So, okay. And that's so, the limitation so let, of the limiting game. Let me, let me throw this example at okay, you. Okay, okay. When was the last time you watched the game show The Weakest Link? I have, so it's back apparently, um, but it's been years. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. The, there are you two are interesting the factors link. at play. So, so for those of you who don't know the premise of The Weakest Link, it's a trivia game, except that it's a centipede game style structure where each question is worth a dollar amount, and the dollar amount increases with each successive question. But at any moment, the player whose turn it is to go next can say bank, and they want to put the money that the players have before them have earned so if they're like up to like the $1,000 question, all that money can go into the pot and they start over with the lower dollar amounts. And if they get a question wrong, then they also start over, but they don't get to bank any of that money. Yeah. So the players are cooperating, trying to get trivia questions right and trying to maximize the size of the pot on the right. basis of two things. Number one, how big do we let the pot get? And number two, related, how likely is it that somebody's going to get a question right and bank the money versus get a question wrong and lose all that money. So it's it's like it's like what if the centipede game hat was mixed with poker where yeah. players are betting on themselves to get the questions right or wrong. Yes. So I am reminded of an episode of that game and I cannot unsee it. So first of all, this is that shrill woman as you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> She, she would just like neg the shit out of people. And yeah, like, they, was, they would like drop them through a hole in the floor. Her and Alex Trebek had a good time hosting shows. But Alex Trebek, much yep. classier. She was like, you're kind of an idiot, huh? Um, Man, that, that Alex Trebek clip of him bullying those nerds for not knowing any of the football the, questions. Oh, that those, was the, the funniest thing there I've ever seen. To be, I've never seen montages, but I have seen, I've seen a couple small montages of, of nerds getting sports questions wrong. And uh, I want a whole 50-minute montage because they never get them. They never fucking get them. Okay. I'm reminded of Weakest Link, where there's a guy, and he had a beard, and he looked like, I don't know, I want to say a 200-level English lit teacher, and he, he was, like, tall and skinny, had, like, weirdly good and bad posture simultaneously. You know, those people, like, the upper back is straight, but the lower back is, like, not going the way it should. That's the most, that's the most British way to describe somebody in the world. <laughs> Shout out to our UK listener. What's up, listener? Um, and he, I remember they had lost money because someone got a question, question wrong, and he, they're like, Marcus, or whatever his name is, he's like, Bank and he stares at him. Like, bank, bank the fucking money. <laughs> this is three hundred dollars, and you bank this fucking money. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I the weakest link was great. It was a great little game show. All the game shows and sports have some actual game theory in them. Like Russian Roulette was that way. And yeah. Friend or Foe is the greatest Prisoner's Dilemma game of all time. That was like exactly, exactly the Prisoner's Dilemma. Okay. So, it, yeah, it, yes, it is the Prisoner's Dilemma. We have other examples. Right now is the World Chess Championships, sort of. Magnus Carlsen, who we've talked about quite a bit on the show, has like, I actually don't care about this anymore. You all bore me, and I would just rather have the highest number, which is the centipede game, by the way. What Magnus, yes, what Magnus Carlsen is doing is that it's not limited. He wants to, his rating, which is what you get if you beat people and it goes down if you lose, he wants it to get to, to a level that no one could theoretically catch. Now, whether or not it's, in, it's inflated is a different algorithm problem for algorithm people, but he doesn't want to play the World Chess Championships because it's a huge pain in the ass and his, his rating doesn't go up and he just wants more rating. He wants, and for good for him, would be more people rated closer to him so that he can beat those yeah. people and get his rating. <laughs> so the World a, Chess yeah, Championship... Yeah. Right. All I right, mean, that's, that, uh, okay. I, I see that's what you're not, saying. That's not what I'm actually going for here. That is just a, an example of the World Chess Championship. I'm going for actual chess. The World Chess Championships are happening right now, and Magnus, the world champion, is not participating because he is bored by these people. Which is, I can't decide if that's weak or hard. Well, time will tell. It's 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 not hard. It is weak. It's uh, boring. Listen, Magnus Carlsen deserves the admiration of chess players the world over because yeah. he is just an exceptionally good. Like, there's an argument to be made based on like the analytics, and so all the analytics people that we routinely bash on this sh on the show. Yeah. Um, first of all, you deserve it, but second of all, in this case, you uh, right like the kind of work right. is important, and I love it, but they are the problem. Like, they want oh so much God. credit for it. You know? Yeah, it's like it's like the fandom that ruins the franchise. They, yeah, just guys. Tone it down a notch. Like yep. we get it. You know how to use Excel. We're citing you right now. We're citing you oh right now. God. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah but we're going to agree with you. There's an <laughs> analytics argument to be made. You can you can calculate like okay, on average, how much does each player's position get worse or better with each move that right. he or she makes, and it, within that, you can factor in. You can calculate like okay, how many how many average blunders does a person commit per game? So like the average grandmaster, like they just don't blunder very often. So, but if you take all of their games and all of their blunders into account, how often do they actually do it? Like it, how many is like 0.5% five blunders per game, 0.8 blunders per game. How many is it? There's an argument to be made. If you go back and analyze all of Magnus Carlson's like classic over the board games that he blunders less than anybody else by like 50%. He just yeah. does not ever up, yeah. make those huge mistakes that a lot of players do, and that we've seen in the World Championship. Like there is like sub one thousand level play by both of the World Champions in the same game on we'll successive moves recently. We'll get to that, and so it, it does happen at the at the very very highest level. Players will just leave pieces undefended. Players will just make mistakes. Well, worse and than that, they're in their own game that. about the centipede game. They're freaking out. Yeah, they they well yeah they're getting they're getting in each other's heads, and. Magnus just he doesn't make he doesn't those do mistakes, that. so he deserves all the chess admiration in the world. But I think it's it's just soft not to defend the title of world I chess agree. champion. I can't. I think yeah. the, I think the last person to do that was Bobby Fischer. Yeah. And let me tell you something. Bobby Fischer deserves all the chess admiration in the world because of his chess playing. Yep. But that guy was a piece of shit. He was a that guy semi was right, like he rabid anti semite despite yeah, being crazy, Jewish. Crazy anti semite. Uh, deeply un-American. He applauded 9-11 and said America had it coming. Yeah, he was He crazy, yeah. Uh, eventually like ran off to Reykjavik to live alone and paranoid. He was paranoid that the Soviets were out to get him. They were, but he made it everybody else's problem. He, <laughs> they were. And, th and then toward the end of his career... He was so good at chess, and he just like he stepped away from the game because he was like losing his mind, being so anti-Semitic and so violent. And uh, he invented something called Chess Nine Sixty or yeah. Fisher Random, where okay, this, the chess board starts with the same 
pieces in the same places every single time. Well, what if we rearrange those pieces? And his thinking was, all you have to do to be good at chess now is like learn book lines 20, 30 moves deep, and it's just a competition for who can remember the most lines. Right. Well, well, we can get rid of all that. We can get rid of all this opening theory and all these wild, deep plans and all this stuff by just rearranging the pieces. And they call it chess 960 because there are 960 ways to rearrange with the two rooks, the two knights, the two bishops, the king, the queen on the back rank. And it's really fun. It's really interesting. And it does take away the like preparation capability and makes yep. it like, truly how is, your, how is your chess skill. But for all of his contributions to the game, Bobby Fischer was a huge, huge piece of shit. And under no circumstances do you got to hand it to him. No. But let's talk about his, his theory about 960 and how all you have to do is memorize lines. So the way that I describe chess to people who don't know chess, because I feel like I have some small bit of talent in explaining things that are complicated that I know about better than other people. The problem I do this operant with golf. Word is, operant word is small there, but yes. Small, tiny. Itty bitty, not that size matters. So the the golf and chess, I find I, I think I do okay at helping people kind of understand what's going on because people who are good, the further away they get from average or beginner, the more their mind becomes corrupt with their own improvement that they forget what they know. And so yes. I think I'm pretty good at like helping people out. So this is what chess is essentially. It is something that starts as a dance and then it becomes a fight. Right? If you're dancing with gloves and you're dancing and we're dancing, and then at a certain point, someone's like, I'm good dancing. It's like, are we going? And then you start boxing. That's what chess is. How so it's long basically that, Jets versus Sharks. Yeah, essentially. Like you, it, it's, it's how long the dance goes, and then, then you start to fight. And like the dance is over. Like everything is pre-choreographed to a certain point. One person breaks, and now it's on. Okay, the dance is huh. essentially over. But, I mean, tell me I'm wrong. Right? So some, in some cases... That, yeah. It's yeah. like, I mean, the Queen's Gambit was a, the D5 move, and the, the show was great. It's also D5 is a great opening, and people play the Queen's Gambit and stuff. But the Gambit, for those of you that don't know, means that a, a player is sacrificing a piece of material in exchange for positional advantage, right? So by taking the piece, you are dancing still. By not taking the piece, you are still dancing. In order to get away from dancing, at a certain point, someone has to break away from the things that people think they're going to do. The centipede game means that that breaking away happens at the most random, bizarre times at higher levels because they just refuse to dance. In the centipede game, if you're playing this and I'm playing that, we can dance for a long time and then we probably forget the lines that we forgot how to dance and then now we have to fight. At the GM level, they don't ever really dance. They just kind of do what they were always going to do. And that's sort of the difference. Like if you watch a GM game as your rating, which is much, much, much higher than average among people who know the rules, but right in the middle of people who do, right? I mean, you're like, yeah. Solid, solidly a middling player. If you were watching the dance between the two world championship players right now, you'd be like, I have no fucking clue what this is. I mean, I, 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 I would say I have some clue what it is, but they would just make moves, moves that are so far. Be- well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, like, oh, yeah, I know what this opening is. Or right. like if they make really obvious moves like a forcing me like, oh, yeah, I, I know why he moved his queen because it was under attack. Right. But so they chess players to be competitive. They understand, like, break away, do the centipede thing. Get the fuck out of here when you need to get out of here, because if you the longer you go, it's not about the pot going up. I have to beat you. And that's why we're yes. talking about these incentives. So we're seeing yep. in the world championship, this guy theoretically, and this is why we've talked about it since literally our first episode, why chess is getting fun is like the bluffing and the poker part of it. Yeah. Either made a, an enormous mistake or it purposely made it a mistake to make it look like he was making a mistake so that his opponent would do it. And then his opponent was like, I know that this is a gambit that just because you put out this enormously important piece, this resignable, fuck upable piece out there, I shouldn't take it because you want me to. And I can't figure out why you want me to, but I know that you want me to. It reminds me of a movie I just watched, The Princess Bride. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> finally. Yes. Finally. Welcome. I've made that reference a half a dozen times on this show. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, it'll get it. And now, now that you're in the club, now you understand you've fallen for one of the classic blunders. Yes. You've fallen for one of the classic blunders. When they're drinking uh -huh. the poison cup and he's like, you want me yes. to do this and you want me to do that. And I know that you know. That's what these guys are. And they have gotten yes. to the point where they literally are looking at the piece and be like, take that significant piece that would completely destroy the game for me, according to everybody who's ever played chess. And the other person's like, no, calling your bluff. And everyone's like, look at the bluff. Well, it might have been a bluff or it might have been a fuck up. And they're so deep in their own heads. We literally will never know. Well, unless they, they'll lie. I would lie about it. If I blundered, I would lie. Well, it was a bluff, of course. It's a gambit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like you, you have plausible deniability like, oh, I, I, I was playing. But anybody with an engine or anybody who has ever played chess knows like my free rook's a free rook dog. Like just yeah. take it. Like there's not some bigger sacrifice here. Like there were only a few pieces on the board. I don't know what was going on there. But the, the point is, yeah, you're right. I mean, the centipede. The centipede game shows that the incentives change the fundamental result of the contest. Like, if you defect right away, it's because you wanted to feat your opponent. If you have some other goal in mind, like generating value or obtaining value for yourself or creating social good, you continue to cooperate. And I think that's it makes for a really interesting examination of, like, when does the theory break away from the empirical result of, like, how people behave. And that's that so fascinating. That was an important part of this because chess grandmasters have been included in the people who experiment in this and chess is backward induction. Like we said, how can you get away from dancing as quickly as possible specifically because one, you know, black pieces move second. So dancing for black is kind of bad unless you can figure it out. They knew what backward induction was in the experiment and they were like, yep, I'm out. Every single grandmaster, they bailed immediately. They understood what they were doing. They understood that they were an experiment. They were like, I'm here to win. That's that's how you have to do it is pure competition. However, if chess went on forever and the goal was simply to amass as much land a la the French Revolution, you'd be like, no, let's just keep going up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's like, let's just add some more squares. Add some more pieces, man. Yeah, there's only 64 of them. That's not enough, right? Well, technically, there's more than 64. We did get into, this has been the, we'll get you out of here on this. <sighs> get you out of here on this. Eat me. Um, <laughs> Get you out of here on this. Interesting to see podcast yeah. about so, news narratives takes. Wife and I had an argument over the last year or so that we put to the we put to a poll, and I have not checked the results, and I forgot to save it, so I'm not sure what happened. Um, it was pretty close at last check. The poll is for two people born between 1985 and 1990. Is it crazier for me, a boy, to have never seen Princess Bride, or is it crazier for her, a young girl at the time, to have never seen Remember the Titans? And the conclusion from the internet and everyone we have polled is like. Yeah, pretty bad. I actually tie. That's, that's pretty bad for both of you. Let's put that to a poll when you publish this. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know what? Let's put the game through. Listen. Is it worse to have never seen Remember the Titans or is it worse to have never seen Princess Bride for two millennium babies? Remember the Titans, baby. That's You got to watch that. You got to watch it. I just Every time I run, I just want to stop and be like, yeah, it's Gettysburg. Zero fun, sir. <laughs> oh, that's right. Sunshine. 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 Inconceivable. <laughs>